If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. I'm so excited to welcome Nikhil. Um, Nikhil, I have so many things I want to dig into today, but I want to start with just the basics. Walk us through the origin story of alchemy and what is alchemy in your own words. Yeah. Uh, Well, first, thanks for having me. Super excited uh, to be here. Basically, Joe and I, my co-founder Joe and I, before we started Alchemy, we spent many, many years building consumer social products. We had spent like, I think four or five years, we pivoted through like 10 different products. Nothing was working. Other people have called it a low point, but we've always had a blast where we've pivoted to like a bodybuilding food delivery service that, uh, and we actually ordered this box of Blue Apron and uh, it's like a food delivery service, food cooking service for those of you who haven't heard of it. We opened the box and we basically were like, what are we doing? We don't know anything about operations and neither of us know how to cook, right? So right after that, we built a social app, ended up being the number one app on the app store and social, millions of people around the world. So we were working on that actually. And then 2017 happened. What really called to us was there, there's this new paradigm shift. And when you think about the big shifts in technology, so there was three over the last hundred years, basically, right? The computer was the first one and the internet was the second one and crypto was the third one. And they each kind of gave you this new building block. So what computers did was enabled machines to follow human instruction. Then the internet came along and said, we're going to supercharge computers and we're going to give them this new capability. We're going to allow them to interact with each other and exchange information. What we saw with crypto was there was a new shift that was happening. And that shift was that machines were able to transact. They were never able to exchange value before. And now they were able to do that. We had started just building stuff in crypto, right? Joe and I were big nerds. You know, We coded every day for like 15 years of our lives. And we basically started building stuff in crypto. And we're like, wow it's so hard to build. Like we're, you know, master's degree in artificial intelligence from Stanford. If we can't figure this out, like how is this going to be accessible to everyone in the world? So what we very quickly realized was when you look at the trends in technology, the computer, the internet, the blockchain, there was always a way for people to build apps, right? There was some kind of product or company or service that made it possible for people to build the tools that we use on a daily basis. But what we saw was like, okay, Microsoft and Apple did this for the computer. Amazon did this for the internet. We need to make it easy to build apps. So that was kind of the vision in the beginning. And the last part I'll say about this is there's millions of companies in the world uh, in technology and real estate and finance, all these things. But if you look at those three companies, Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft, those are the three most valuable companies on planet, right? And that was what we realized. We said, hey, we don't know if this crypto thing is definitely going to be a thing and in what time frame, But if it is, we have a really exciting opportunity here. I want to go, um, what exactly is Alchemy? And I'm going to just pull some of the things. For those that are listening that are new to Web3, can you try to give a little bit more detail, like try to make it visual maybe even, of what Alchemy does? So I think the way to think about it is, imagine you're trying to build a house, right? Like you're like build a physical house, right? And 
all you have is a hammer and a chisel, right? Like what, what can you build? You can kind of build like a mud hut. Maybe you can chop some logs and like, and, and, and put it together and put like a thatched roof on top. You know, the construction equipment, you can build skyscrapers, right? You can build the Empire State Building. You can build, you know, the Burj Khalifa, right? Whatever it is. And the way we think about ourselves at Alchemy is we provide developers with the tools they need to build great application. In Web3, all the developers coming in don't have the tools and infrastructure, and we're basically providing that. I think one of the things that I wanted to dig into next was you're now powering major Web3 players from uh, NBA Topshop to the NFT marketplace, OpenSea, uh, even Adobe's NFT offering. Can you talk a little bit about those first users and how you actually stood this up? You built viral products before, um, but give us a sense of like, what muscles did you pull on as you were trying 2017 and beyond to actually turn the lights on? Really, the most important thing in a startup is speed, right? When Joe, my co-founder Joe, has this great quote, he says, you know, the big don't eat the small, it's the fast eat the slow. And for us, one of the things we always prided ourselves was on speed. So when we did consumer social back in the day, when you submitted an app to the app store to get it approved and build a new version, so let's say you're Facebook and you build Facebook Messenger and you want to build a new version of Facebook Messenger. What happens is you will spend a week or two building a product, then you'll ship it to the app store. That process actually to get approved to the app store used to take a week or two. Then you'll get feedback for another week uh, from users and then you'll build a new version and ship it, right? So, and then by the time you get one iteration cycle in, you're talking about two months, right? And so what Joe and I did back in the consumer social days is we used to actually dress up as Berkeley students and we would drive to Berkeley and we would like literally pretend we were interns and show people our app and plug it into their, um, and, and get, get feedback on it. Then we'd sit on the steps of Sprawl Plaza and we'd plug it into our phone and or plug our computer into our phone and recode the app there and then hit refresh and then show the next person, right? So we cut like a two month iteration cycle down into two minutes. And that was what enabled us to win in consumer social. So what happened is we actually took the same mindset for Alchemy. So we actually built the first version. And we again, we had built it already, but then we rebuilt it from scratch in like five days. And we just like begged people to use it, right? We were like, please can you use this and try it out. And turns out it was actually a problem that people had. So people used it. Uh, your co-founder had a quote that I, I thought we could talk about, which is when you look at a computer, the internet didn't replace the computer. Web three isn't going to replace web two, but rather extend the capabilities and experiences of web two. And I, I love this a lot because I always tell everybody web three isn't going to like function any differently than the way that we already yeah. operate. But if you have to think about it, if you fast forward a decade, what do you think web three is going to unlock in a way that's just profound? Like, yeah. give us a sense of the possibilities that go through your mind as somebody who's literally sitting on the perch staring at the future. I think even before that, there's two really great videos that like come to mind. I show these to people all the time. One is Bill Gates in 1970s. I think 70s or early 80s, where this lady is asking him, like, uh, this interviewer, this on TV, she's like, but why would anybody ever use a computer? And he's like, well, you can do these things that it lets you do spreadsheets and word processing, all this stuff. And and then she was like, but yeah, but how could it ever be better than a book? And then he's like, well, you can have like multimedia and images, this this thing and move all the stuff around. And she was just like, I just don't see how it could be better than a book, right? And kind of similar on the internet, there's there's great uh, video in like, I think the early 90s, someone on, on CNBC or somewhere saying like, oh, Bob, tell us about this information superhighway and how people will air quotes try to buy things on the internet, right? And it was so kind of almost like sarcastically said. And I think it points to a really interesting fact that it's really, really, really hard before the fact to try to predict what technology is going to do, right? If I told you, hey, I'm going to give you this 
physical machine that will let you add numbers way faster than you could add numbers before, right? What would you think? Like, which is a computer, right? What would you think? You think, oh, maybe I'll make a faster calculator, right? But it's hard to imagine, oh, like, let me make a video game or let me make, you know, a word processor and let me make whatever the internet, right? And I think similarly with the internet, you know, when the first things on the internet happened, you what you saw was you saw the real world, this kind of skeuomorphic period where what that means is you take the real world analogs and move it to the digital world, right? So for the internet, that was, what were the first websites that people put up? It was like, put up your recipes online or, you know, you put on uh, white pages or yellow pages. And if you guys are uh, listening to this podcast, remember what those are. Um, you know, you put a list of phone numbers online and these, yes, was it helpful? Yeah, you know, having having white pages online is like marginally helpful. You don't have to carry that big book around. But that weren't the real, that wasn't the real applications that made the internet our fabric of our daily life, right? What are the things that we use? DoorDash, Uber, like, you know, Zoom, like these kind of things. It's very hard to predict early on. And I think we're still in that skeuomorphic era of Web3, where the things you see, you know, you look at NFTs, it's like a digital representation of art, which definitely does have value. And I think that that is really exciting. But this is just scratching the surface because NFTs aren't like an image. It's actually, a, it's almost like a web page. You can program them to do anything you want. You know, we have multiple friends and, and our customers who are building really cool stuff. Like one of our friends is building this, this kind of like, idea that I'm an artist and a musician and now all my users can get a share of my uh, the money that I make out of my song if they invest in it. You get to invest in a song, right? So, and I think fundamentally, the reason it's really exciting and some of the applications which we can, we can share is like, right now, I think for two reasons. One, it gives financial access to everyone in the world, right? If you live in America and you're, you know, making whatever, 50K, it is very difficult to understand this problem. If you live in Uruguay, you can't buy like United States stocks. You can't buy the S&P 500. You can't invest in like companies like that, right? Number one, that's going to be completely changed. But I think the second thing that's really interesting, and I'll give one more analogy, is phone didn't change for a hundred years. It's invented like roughly like, you know, early 1900s, 1908, 1910, somewhere around there. Basically, nothing changed till about like 2008, 2009, right? Like literally for a hundred years, like nothing changed. And why? Because the phone was completely in control of, you know, the AT&T, like the hardware manufacturers, like they were the ones who controlled innovation on the phone. It wasn't an open platform. iPhone comes along. Now what happens? Anybody can build for the phone, right? And like, what was the phone for the first hundred years? It's like, you know, you could call someone, you know, they added long distance calling and yeah, that was cool. But like, that was basically, what is the phone today? It's Zoom, you know, it's FaceTime. It's like all these, it's Snapchat. It's like these new kind of interactions. You can communicate with anyone, anywhere around the world for free and like rich multimedia, right? And that all happened in the span of like five to 10 years. And that happened because the platform was opened up. And I think like what you're going to see is right now, finance, it's not been the same for 100 years. It's been the same for 5,000 years, right? And now what's going to happen is this whole system is going to be opened up so anybody can build on it. And you'll see all these kind of crazy new kind of things. And it was, it was just completely changed so fast. We won't even believe it. And the reason why is there's a great quote that when the, if we had the internet, when we were building the internet, it would have gone a lot faster. We're building crypto. We have the internet and it's going to go a lot faster. I want to get a sense. So you're literally at the forefront of Web3. And I think everybody is trying to figure out where are we in web three? Are we ending one, two, three? And to your point, yeah. it's like changes sudden and then all at once, right? Yeah. In your own words, how would you describe where we are in the evolution of web three? Are we in inning zero? Yeah. Five? How do you just, we need your language of how to think about that. Yeah. 
in 2017, Joe and I were like, shoot, we missed it. We missed it, right? And it was interesting because I remember reading about Bill Gates and when he dropped out of Harvard, he's like, oh man, we're missing it. Paul, like Paul Allen, like we're missing it. This is happening. Where we are in Web3 is we got in the pickup truck from our house. We drove up to the parking lot. We pulled out the table. We put the beers on there and we started, you know, playing some beer pong. And But like, we're like an hour from the game even starting and we're just like having a good time and then getting excited for like what's going to happen. Like that's where we are today. Wait, I love those. Like the best analogy I've ever heard. Okay, I want to ask a few more questions um, generally. So as we think about the future of alchemy and everything that you want to build, what are the things that worry you? What do you think the risks are, any of the blockers to the category? And, and what I mean by that is, is it regulation? Is it bad actors? Like who, who are the people or things that keep you up at night as you think about the business that you want to continue to build? Yeah. The way that I think about it, it and, and maybe I'll say this for Web3 more broadly, right? The way you think about it is Web3 is going to happen whether or not, right? Like, there's no way that the internet was not going to happen. Like, it would have happened one way or the other, no matter what any government said, no matter what any, any like, politician said, no matter what anybody has opinion on, it was going to happen, right? Like, maybe it would have been, slow, like, slightly delayed or all these, or, or you know, maybe it would come sooner or later or whatever. Web3 is the same. Like, it is going to happen regardless of, like, which senator has an opinion on whatever, right? The question is, is will the hub of innovation for Web3 be in the United States or not? That is the big question, right? And like, that's something that I think about a lot. You know, I live in the United States, love it. It's it's amazing. And, and the question is, that, you know, America has been the center of technology innovation for the computer and internet industries because of Silicon Valley, because of the encouragement of entrepreneurship, because of the encouragement of good regulation that has, well, you know, we can have your own opinion on it, but generally like the technology has been able to thrive. If the United States clamps down on this, it's not just going to be Web3 is done. It's like Web3 is going to China, Web3 is going to Hong Kong, Web3 is going to South America. And you see this right now. We see a ton of people, like I see this on the micro scale, a ton of Web3 people moved out of San Francisco. I live in San Francisco. Most people moved to New York or Miami or Austin or Puerto Rico, right? And I, and I see you see a lot of those the politicians there are very kind of welcoming to this. Or, you know, even internationally, like internationally, like in Portugal and, and Hong Kong and like these all these other countries, you have really favorable ecosystems for creating technology. And that's more of my concern. It's not an if, but it's a where. Um, I think that was incredibly well said. I want to just get a sense of what now are the types of innovation within Web3 that you are most bullish on? What are the things that you just see happening faster than others? I personally think, and this is going to be probably a not popular viewpoint. I actually am very excited about NFTs. And the reason is, when you think about the cycle of development of a technology, right? There's a technological innovation. So for the computer, that was these like new semiconductors and, and chips that allowed you to compute things really fast. Then there's a developer platform that is built that, you know, Windows and Mac that enable people to build apps. But ultimately, the most important thing is consumer applications. And the reason that developer platform is important is because it accelerates the adoption and creation of consumer applications, right? At the end of the day, in order for any technology to have value, right? The technology needs to have like end user. It needs to be, it needs to be helpful for you and I in our daily lives, full stop period. And Joe and I have this thing where we talk about where if you are saying, hey, I want to use a decentralized product or I want to use whatever. If you have to talk about the technology, it means the product's not useful yet, right? No one ever says, I used a phone application or I used a computer application to go to dinner. And then at dinner, I used a internet application yeah. to pay. Yeah. Right. It's like, no, I just called an Uber. And then like I paid without. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So like 
once you stop talking about the technology, then that means a product has value on its own besides the fact it's technology. No one cares if a product is decentralized. It needs to, you need to be able to do something that you weren't able to do before. And I think the reason that NFTs are really exciting is it's the first kind of like consumer friendly application of crypto. Like the first like kind of like real application was like decentralized finance. So like DeFi summer 2020, but it's just not consumer friendly to the mass market. I think NFTs are the first thing that's like going to be really mass market friendly. And what we'll see is we'll see an explosion in the number of use cases. Is the future multi-chain or not? How do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, my views on this have evolved over time. So what I would say is Based on my current knowledge right now, I would say that there will be a few dominant chains over time. And I think you'll see like a very kind of focused application specific chain. So there'll be a few big winners in terms of like, here's the standard like development platform that people use. It could see a B1, but I, I, I could also see being one to three. I would say one to three. But then I think you'll also see this like, you know, I have a chain specifically for my video game that I use for this like metaverse thing, right? So that's kind of how I think it'll play out. I love that. Alchemy is valued north of $10 billion and has just only about 50 employees. Yeah. That's, that's so rare, Nikhil. That yeah. is so, so rare. I, I, want I think to, it's a record. <laughs> I think it's a record and it's pretty cool. And I wanted to ask the question, just what is your approach to scaling your own talent? So for me, I had started a couple of companies that fell apart because of the team before. So this was something that I cared about a lot. We have two goals, right? Number one is we want to build something that improves life for every person on the planet, right? And that sounds crazy, but like when you look at the companies that have come close to it, it is like the, the Microsoft, the Apple, the Amazon, right? And because you have the secondary and tertiary effects by building a platform that enables people to build things. That's our first goal, right? The second goal is, and this is equally as important, I think it's like 50-50. We want to make it feel like you have an absolute blast on the journey. Like our team, we should say like, this is the best experience of my life, right? And, and we take that very seriously, right? And in, in Concretely, people ask, are we going remote? I'm like, no, it's not fun. I don't want to work at a remote company. Do you guys want to work at a company? Everyone's like, no. So we don't do remote, right? And in terms of the team, we had just been a very, very, very lean team, right? When we did the three and a half. So last year, a little bit of context on company. That was a story. So end of 2020, we'd been working on startup stuff for like, I'd been 10 years out of undergrad, eight years out of grad school, basically been working on startup stuff the entire time. Basically, I had nothing to show for it at the end of eight years, end of 2020, right? And, you know, we had people trying to acquire us then. And my dad was like, look, like, you know, maybe you should just like sell. And then, you know, you'll have like a decent outcome and, you know, you can get married and focus on important things. And we, John and I looked at ourselves and we're just like, man, like, you know, we're having such a blast. Like, do we, like, we never want to sell. We want to build this to, we have this really exciting opportunity. And, you know, do we think crypto, all we need is like crypto take off. It might be five or 10 years that we commit. We're like, yeah, we're going to do it. And took 30 days. January, the company's worth $72 million. February, was, we did around at 500. September, we did around at 3.5 billion. December, we did around at 10 billion. And basically, what we realized was when we did the 3.5 round, we were only 27 people, right? And which was crazy. But our secret sauce there was we had out of the 27, 22 are founders. And that for us was really the secret sauce. Like we, we hired people who were just total hustlers, super driven, super motivated. Joe and I feel so humbled and lucky to get to work with these people every day, right? And, and maybe like one piece of advice I'll, I'll share is, so one, it's not just a good thing, right? We could have grown way faster if we hired, we, we just kind of lacked quality on the team. Every, every investor we have is like every other company, we tell them to raise the talent bar. You guys honestly just need to lower the talent bar and just hire someone, right? And the last kind of analogy I'll give here is when you're thinking about hiring, it's really important that you hire for the 
the both raw talent and personality and, and skills and stuff, but you need to hire for the stage and the role that you're at. So I think in Silicon Valley, there's typically this tendency to be like, oh, this person worked at Google and they were a PhD and these kind of things. But that's like going, like, let's say you're an NFL team and you're like, what do you want? Do you want people who are great at football or do you want to say like, oh, you know, let's go to the NBA and like hire NBA players. And they're great at what they do, but you're not playing basketball, you're playing football, right? And I think for us, we're an early stage startup. We're still like, you know, we still operate like an early stage startup. We need people who are hustlers and who get shit done and and have that founder mindset. And so what we found is like hiring startup people and especially startup founders, but especially startup people was our kind of secret sauce. Now we don't hire anyone if they don't have a startup background, like that's even, even today. I'm like dying to ask because I can't not ask it. How do you hire a founder? How clear yeah. that is like a, a real testament to your leadership qualities. But like 22 of the 50 are founders. That's crazy. Yeah. How do you pull it off? It was actually 22 out of 27. And also we had almost everyone in the company was an engineer. I think it was like 25 or something like that were engineers. And we had no marketing, no sales. We had spent zero, even since they've almost basically spent $0 on customer acquisition. We're just building our sales and go-to-marketing team, go-to-market team. So we spend a ton of time in recruiting, right? Like, let me give you an example, right? For this one PM dude we hired, there are 5,280 product managers in the Bay Area. We emailed 4,800 of them. We interviewed about 120-ish of them. There was, uh, I personally interviewed like 20 to 30. There was one guy who's going to be our second PM. Uh, there was one guy who was awesome. And he was like, you know, Stanford CS, sold a couple companies, was at Facebook, ran half the trust and safety team of like 425 people. And basically like, I, like I poured so much time and energy into this guy. Like I was like, Rob, like you have to join. It's gonna be amazing. Like blah, blah, all this stuff. And I, I like took his wife out to dinner. And like you know, there's always the real decision maker. And you know, the real decision maker is always the spouse, right? And we even won over the spouse. And she's like, No, you should do this. And, blah, blah. and he's like, You know, I'm having a kid. And like we live far away. And you have to come remote every day. We have to come in the office every day. And these things. And and he actually said no. And I was like heartbroken because like one i poured so much time two i felt like he was making the wrong the mistake for him obviously we really wanted it but i was like he's just such a good match right and this was like this was like december 2020 and i just remember being like i was like oh my god we desperately need pm i poured so many hours of my life into this and didn't work out then i called him in january and you know this is when things like started taking off and, and i was like look rob you got to join like i called him like a month or two i think it was two months later maybe three months later and he's like you know i've just been dealing with like i've been at facebook and I've been dealing with like all these like political stuff. And I, every meeting I walk into, it's a bunch of bureaucracy. And every day I'm like, oh, I could just get out of me building cool stuff, right? And then he ended up joining us like three days later. So we've done crazy stuff to get people. And I can talk about that. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carden knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carda Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carda.com forward slash fundraise. That's carda.com forward slash fundraise. Okay, I'm going to transition to you and I'm going to go fast here. Um, so, Nikhil, uh, you grew up in Lubbock, Texas, where you are yeah. the highest GPA in the history of the school. Oh, my God. <laughs> so nerdy, I know I pulled it. I know I found it. I went deep here. Um, I want to just get a sense of, like, you clearly are such an 
energizing, positive, like you've got the magnetism that you want to see in founders and you're a serial entrepreneur and you're taking this wild swing. What did your parents do? If we go back to those early, like, give me something that your parents did that really stand out as helping make you stand out. One, my parents both came from India. My dad like grew up like in this village with like no electricity, like carrying water from the well and like, you know, for his family and this kind of stuff. Ended up like winning kind of like the physics. It, like there's like a science fair equivalent in India for like you know, whatever billion people in India. And he ended up winning that for physics. And my mom also was like, you know, didn't study and was like one of the top, like I think she got number two overall in all of India on the CPA exam and number one and something, all this stuff, right? So I think I think the first thing coming here was like, they just, had and, and and we came they came to the US, they were like very poor. But I think there's kind of three things that really didn't solve. One is like just excellence. So like, look, we just expect you to like do the best in whatever you can. The second thing is I think hard work. Like my mom would call me the night before my exams at Stanford and she would be like, Oh, like, how many times did you read the book? I'm like, Mom, I haven't even opened the book. It's still in the shrink wrap, right? And she's like, You haven't read it at least three times. I was like, No, I haven't read it. But they just kind of this this hustle and hard work. And that's honestly the number one characteristic that Joe and I look for in hires today. It's like, are you just gonna grind and work really hard? And I think the third thing, I think this is honestly the most, if I had to pinpoint one thing, I would say this is the most important thing. It was a product of me growing up in Lubbock. In Palo Alto, if you grow up, there's so much competition. There's like everyone's like so smart, so good, all this stuff. In Lubbock, Texas. I could be the best at academics and the best at sports and the best at student council and the best at social life. And you can just do that because it's like being a small fish, big fish in a small pond. And I think just parents growing up every day were just like, look, you can do whatever you want. Like if you put in, nothing's guaranteed. You have to work super hard, but if you have opportunity, right? And if you put in the time, like you can be great, right? And I think just seeing that over and over and having that reinforced for 18 years of my life. And I think there's this thing when a lot of people came to Stanford, they struggled a lot because they were like, oh, you know, I was the best at X and I was the best at these things. But then now there's someone way better than me. It's a world champion. You know, my, my roommate ended up being a seven foot tall guy, plays in. Yeah. And just like, I literally went back to my first week at Stanford. I was like, everyone is famous except for me. <laughs> it's like, it was ridiculous. Like uh, multiple people are doing a Wikipedia page, more involved in the Olympics, like all this kind of stuff. So I think for me, just realizing that if I put enough time and energy into it, and I fundamentally, not just me, I believe anybody can, like you put enough time and energy, you can get what you want. One of the things I was going to ask is, um, again, you have this incredible um, knowledge of just your team actually has a reputation for incredible work ethic. Um, yeah. You guys work consistently into the early morning hours. How do you maintain that drive as a team? Slash, yeah. what do you have to? Is it because you hired all founders who were super self-motivated? Yeah. But how does that work? I think we filter very, very heavily on it. I literally tell people, I'm like, look, do you want the cushy life? Like, do you want the the Google like going at 1030 and have all my perks and I have two hour lunch and I leave it at 330? Like, that's a very comfortable life. They'll pay you a shit ton of money. They're going to pay you way more than we'll pay you. But you have a chance to like really come here and, and have a massive impact on the world and, you know, have a great financial outcome. It's the love of the game. It's the love yeah, of the game. Exactly. Okay. Last question on you. Super fast. Uh, what's the one thing you do to stay sane? Oh, I honestly, I just love what I do. It never feels like work. I think the thing is I just surround myself with great people. And I only do things I love, right? Luckily, I, I love whatever, but I've never had coffee in my life. I don't drink caffeine. I've literally never had a cup of coffee. I don't drink caffeine. I'm like a weird person. <laughs> so probably one thing to stay sane is I really love like sports and exercising. So like Joe and I, like when we had a big win, like or a big launch or a big success, instead of, we wouldn't go like get drunk. We would like go to the gym and work out. We'd have a good session. I mean, we definitely enjoy like 
parting, but it was like, this was our, this was our, uh, no, I, I, I love that. Okay. I'm going to ask a question. First thing that comes to mind, fastest answer possible. Perfect. Um, what gets you out of bed every day? Uh, my team. Favorite book that you've gone back to a few times, any category, any book? Uh, Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill. Your favorite interview question when you're trying to determine if somebody should join Alchemy? What would you do if you had infinite time and money? Oh my God, I love it. Fast forward two years, how many days a week do people go to offices? Uh, at Alchemy? Every day. No, no, I mean, in general. I'm like, I already oh. knew the Alchemy answer. <laughs> um... I think it will revert more back to in office. I think they'll definitely be remote, but I think the people who are hungry and hustle and scrappy will be in office. Uh, oh my God, I want to just spend hours with you. Okay, last <laughs> question. Other than alchemy, what's one other category of innovation that you are excited about? So something not totally touching alchemy, any other category of in- innovation that you've gotten excited about? In Web3 or not Web3? Whatever comes to mind. Um, consumer-facing applications in Web3. Like, that's going to be where all the innovation happens, and that's what's going to bring Web3 to the world. God, oh my God. Um, Everybody out there, thank you so much for joining us today. If you haven't already checked it out, head to alchemy.com to learn more. And you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Montobel and just, Nikhil, what an absolute, truly energizing session. You're a badass. We're so grateful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was so fun.